Welcome to Coffee and Onesies. I'm Nikki. And I'm Chelsea. On today's episode, we are going to be covering some very spooky and very real true crime stories. Um, Some of those stories are going to be the Candyman, the List Family Murders, the Trick or Treat Murders, and a few others. So go ahead and put your onesie hoodie on and grab your warm cup of coffee because we are about to dive in. I have to say I'm very excited about this episode because I know that me and you at True at Heart are crime junkies all the way. Oh, yes. Uh, We love crime junkies. Exactly. So this is so exciting. And it's been like, of course, it's like spooky when you're reading them and just as you're listening to others cover these crimes. And what a better what a better way to do it with especially real crimes that occurred on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, Halloween being one of the most popular holidays so now you're gonna have a little bit of a different view of Halloween and you might want to check your shoulder oh yeah absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one that we're gonna go is what you might know him as it's very infamous the candy man or the man who killed on Halloween Halloween and you might know him by Ronald O'Brien and here's how the story goes This story takes us back to 1974. Ronald Clark O'Brien and Denain, I apologize if I am saying this incorrectly. (laughs) They had two children, Timothy, eight, and Elizabeth, five. They resided in Deer Park, Texas. Ronald worked as a optician at Texas State Optical Company. He was amidst some serious financial problems, and the family had been forced to sell their home to help pay for loans. Ronald discussed his money troubles with friends and acquaintances, telling some of them that he would receive some money at the end of the year. O'Brien decided to make the decision to increase the life insurance coverage on his children. (gasps) That seems a little questionable. Your children? Do you plan on something happening to them soon? Yeah, that's real sketch right there. If somebody comes, <laughs> if somebody, anyone that's on here that listens or is someone that works in insurance, someone comes up to you and tries to increase the insurance on a family member. Oh, right there. I know. I feel like, um, yes, sir. I could assist you with this, but could you please answer the, <laughs> the most important question? Like, is there something that we should be aware, aware of? of? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, by mid-October, both children had $30,000 on their name. And this is a very big lump of change in the 70s. So while I know that there's life insurances that are so much higher these days, that is a big lump sum. Oh, yeah. O'Brien and his wife, on the contrary, had minimal coverage to their names. Well, this story takes us on Halloween night in 1974, eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien returned to his Houston home from a long night of trick-or-treating. After the children got home from the festivities, O'Brien told his children that they could eat one piece of candy before going to bed. While Timothy chose the pixie stick, of course. He was having trouble opening the tube, so O'Brien rolled the stick in his hand to help him open it. Upon consuming some of the stick, Timothy complained that it was, it was bitter tasting. O'Brien then gave Timothy some Kool-Aid to help wash the stick's continents down. 
Immediately, Timothy ran to the bathroom and started vomiting. When he started having convulsions, O'Brien called for an ambulance. Well, Timothy died within an hour after his arrival at the hospital. After changing his story multiple times, police learned that Ronald was responsible for his son's death as he had poisoned the candy with cyanide. A year later, he was found guilty of murder, and he was given the death penalty by lethal injection. That murder left its mark, though. Parents today will check their kids' candy to see if it's been tampered with. And I remember this as my mom got super paranoid. Like, me and my brother, I think the last time we went trick-or-treating, I remember what, what I was. I was a ladybug. And I was probably about... 11 years old actually probably younger I would maybe even say nine or ten and we never went trick-or-treating after that she was so paranoid with hearing you know about razors being in apples and and like Snickers bars and just like being poisoned and like all of these different things that like she was like no 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 unless I buy it myself uh, you guys aren't going (laughs) anymore that's, That's so, so bizarre. Crazy. Yeah, especially because I remember hearing about all this. And then when I would go trick-or-treating with my brothers, I at first was like, oh, this is just like silly things parents tell us. And then I would hear from friends being like, no, this is real. Check your candy. Make sure it's not open. So even like – and then I would be so annoying, but I was being extra cautious. And so even to this day – when I take my brother's trick or treating, if I see that like even the corner is open, I'll be like, "I'm sorry, can he have another one?" <laughs> Just because I'm like, "No, you're not, you're not playing that game with me." It's like it's like that thing of like you know what I mean, like one soiled bean like spoils the whole pot. Yeah. Of yeah. like you know because of this individual, and I, firstly, I'm like, "Wow, the way that you clearly loved your children." Um, that, that their life literally mean, meant nothing to you. But because of his actions, like parents today are, they're terrified. And some more than others of just like paranoia of what if my child is next? What yeah. if somebody would do that? Because there are lots of sick people in this world, sadly. And you do have to look over your shoulder. That's like the, that's the, that, that's the sad fact. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. And it's just like, it's just crazy that people would even think to do that or they get any sort of pleasure from doing that, especially to children. But, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's just insane. It's crazy, the world that we live in. Um, But this next story is the Lisk family murders. And it takes place back in 2010 on Halloween. So 16-year-old Devin Griffin returned home from church to his two-story family home in Ottawa County, Ohio. When Devin entered the home, he went into his bedroom to play video games like any, I feel like any 16-year-old boy does. All my brothers do that all day long. (laughs) And completely unaware as to what horrors had earlier unfolded. When he went into his mother's bedroom later, He was met by a gruesome scene. His mother, Susan Lisk, and her husband, William Lisk, were laying in a puddle of blood in their bed. Oh, my God. Just, like, imagining that. A 16-year-old boy. That's like my brother, Phoenix. Like, if Phoenix – like, what? What would they It's like the 
yeah what what is your fully I, I just feel like my my soul would just transcend like I wouldn't know be just be frozen mm-hmm. in complete like is this no this can't be real right now am I dreaming did I fall asleep while playing video games yeah <laughs> and it's about to get more unreal because as his mother and her husband were lying in a puddle of blood in another room his brother Derek Griffin was also laying lifeless on the floor they had all been shot and then brutally bludgeoned with a claw oh hammer. At first, Devin believed it to be a Halloween prank. He's probably like, okay, guys, so funny. Get up. Okay, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He described it as something out of a haunted house. An investigation quickly led to William Leake's son, William Lisk Jr., who had fled to the family's cottage in Carroll County, Ohio. Following the slaying... And it was soon revealed that this wasn't the first violent outburst from Lisk Jr., who had previously smashed a coffee cup on Suzanne's head and stole her car. Okay, right there. His mother? If someone does that to you, you need to take a step back and reevaluate the situation. Yeah, you're like, uh, warning signs. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. What? So he reportedly had a history of mental health issues however he was declared legally sane in exchange of his guilty plea prosecutors agreed not to seek the death penalty without shedding a tear list jr told the courtroom that he could not give a solid motivation behind the murders of his father stepmother and stepbrother he just said i can't really explain why this all happened but I think most of it all, it had to do with my mental illness. And that's what he said. So then in April of 2015, William Lewis Jr. committed suicide in prison. I, I I can't. Like, firstly, when you were, like, talking about how he died, I was like, okay, well, that sounds personal. And, you know, it starts to make you question. I'm like, did he, clearly he wasn't a fan of his stepmother, Susan, as he smashed the coffee cup over her head and stole her car so he must have had like the also the the same type of vendetta for the stepbrother of like who are you but I guess it's like I don't know you think that he killed his dad in like venge of like why would you marry this person like you two are just as meaningless to me it's so crazy and that's the thing too I feel like when it comes to cases such as this and um Obviously, we've listened to quite a few of them on Crime Junkies. But when it comes to cases, when it involves mental illness, I feel like that is, it just takes a different toll because it's like, they kind of are just like, yeah, you know, I just felt like doing this today or like they can't really explain it. And it's just, it's just so crazy to see how like the human mind works. Um, But yeah, but like when all that happened with the smashing of the coffee cup and the stealing of the car, I feel like that would have been a good, a good uh, opportunity for them to just, you know, hey, let's let's get you some help. Yeah, but, it makes uh, me curious of like what other type of, I guess, um, aggressions did he ex- express? You know, like when they talk mm-hmm. about these like family slayers uh, or like the the family annihilators I guess that's the better proper term for it like a lot of them even showcase like different things of 
you know, but that's also the same thing with like murders in general. They're either animal cruelty or setting fires or doing, doing like little things that don't seem, well, they're bad either way. Um, but like the little things, and then it all leads up to like the, the, the grand finale, like the biggest act of all. It's so crazy. Yeah. No, it's just, oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Well, the next um, story that we're going to cover is called The Trick-or-Treat Murder. And this brings us back to Halloween night of 1957. Peter and Betty Fabiano were preparing to go to bed when their doorbell rang. It was after 11 p.m. and they thought it was a little too late for kids to be trick-or-treating. But since they were still awake and still had candy to offer, Peter answered the door with a candy bowl in his hands. When he opened the door, he was surprised to see not a child, but an adult concealing their face with a masquerade mask. They were pointing a paper bag at his chest. The mask assailant then shot Peter before speeding off. Betty jumped out of bed and ran downstairs to find her husband lying on the floor covered in blood and gasping for air. She quickly rang on the ambulance but he died before they managed to get him to the hospital. At first, authorities thought it was a random murder. Peter, Peter Fabino was a beauty shop owner who seemed to have no enemies. They began investigating deeper and found 40-year-old Joan Ravel, who had once been employed at Peter's salon. Police became suspicious when she began lying about where she was on the night of the murder. Of course, that's like the first sign. You can't get your story straight. <laughs> they had to release her due to the fact that they had no evidence against her, but they kept tabs on her. The following month, an anonymous call directed police to a rented locker in a department store in which they found a thirty-eight revolver, the same gun used in the murder on Peter. Why would... What, firstly, a de- locker in a department store? When, yeah, that's always <laughs> a smart way to go. <laughs> I'm like the most public spot ever. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. The locker was being rented out by a woman called Golden Pizer. When Pizer was tracked down and questioned by police, she confessed that Joanne Rabble was her lover. She also confessed that Rabble lied to her about Peter by claiming that he was a wife beater and abuser. Rabble had made Pizer believe that Peter was an evil man and deserved to die. Pizer agreed, and she would help and eventually confessed that she was the one who killed Peter. In an event more bizarre, in an even more bizarre twist, it was soon discovered that Rabble had even been having an affair with Peter's wife, Betty. My gosh. And wanted to get rid of Peter. In fact, when Betty and Peter had a brief separation, Betty moved in with Rebel. What the world? (laughs) What? Oh my gosh. When they married, when the married couple reconciled, one condition was that Betty would to never see Rebel again. Rebel pleaded not guilty and Pizer pleaded insanity. Both agreed to a plea deal for second-degree murder and life in prison. That seems crazy. Not, firstly, not guilty, even though the 
what it's so this one was pretty complicated but i was like also why would you hide your gun in a department store locker secondly from beauty store attendant to having an affair with your wife to (laughs) what in the world yeah i feel like all of that just like like it was confusing because there was so much going on there and they thought they were probably being so clever too they're like, oh, no one's going to know about this because I'm hiding this gun in my locker of the department store. Like, what? I know. It's like, firstly, you get caught and you're lying. And then yeah. you hide this and you put the locker under the name of your partner. And then they find out clearly that's your partner and you didn't have a story. It's mm-hmm. just, it was like, I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, my goodness. So... This other story, um, it's not trick-or-treat murders like the one that we just talked about, but this girl is actually going out to trick-or-treat, as most do on Halloween night. So this is on Halloween night of 2011, and 18-year-old Taylor Van Geese was adding the final touches to her zombie costume, you know, as most people do, (laughs) um, before they go out for a spooky night. Once she was ready, she departed her home in Armstrong, B.C., so British Columbia, to meet her friend to go trick-or-treating. Well, she never showed up to her friend's house, and her friend became alarmed when she received an ominous text message from Van Deese saying that she was creeped out, quote-unquote, because she thought that she was being followed. Oh. By who, she never got a chance to say. She stopped replying to her friend, and she never showed up at her house. Okay, if I ever tell you, this is why I also share my location with people, because if (laughs) I ever tell someone I'm being followed, you better find me oh no yeah and firstly don't stop resorting to texts call them yeah i I mean 2011 i don't know what i would say wasn't video chatting available in 2011 i would have called someone and had them following me and started making sounds like a crazy person as soon as i even if it was just like a jogger running behind me Mm -hmm. if it meant of for my safety to look insane for a brief moment for my safety then that's what I got to do. <laughs> yep. But oh my man, goodness. It's just, it, that's, that's right there. I'm just like, what? no, don't walk by yourself. Don't go by yourself. But yeah, so she stopped replying to her friend and she never showed up at her house. And within an hour of leaving home, her parents received a phone call from somebody who had found Van Deese discarded phone. So they found her discarded, oh Taylor's discarded phone. Mm-hmm. At 8.45 p.m., police found her badly beaten body beside a railroad track. She was laying mm-hmm. in a pool of her own blood, and an ambulance was called, but it was too late. She passed away at the hospital shortly after arriving. There was evidence of strangulation, but it was blows to the head with a steel pipe that ultimately killed her. Mm-mm. In such a small town, it wasn't long before 26-year-old Matthew Forrester was apprehended. After an interrogation, he confessed that he bludgeoned her to death Mm-mm. after she resisted his attempt to rape her. <laughs> DNA that 
was collected from Van Dee's body match Forrester's DNA. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenceless life imprisonment. In March of 2017, however, he was granted a ritual citing errors that may have affected the jury's decision to find Forrester guilty of first-degree murder as opposed to a lesser charge. Are you kidding me? So in 2017 is when they're deciding to charge him and uh, being guilt. Like what? They like, find so the DNA. They cle- he clearly said that he did it, but because she was resisting, like no means no. I, like go. So you away. get six years in prison after confessing. Your DNA is on the body. You told them exactly what you did it with. Yep. And you get life in prison, and then you get a retrial. Like what? Yeah, I just I, I don't. That, I do not understand. Like I the, you're clearly you are clearly guilty. Like there's no there's no like what ifs about it. You your DNA has been found. You told them what you did it with. You told them why. Like they have everything, all the colors of the rainbow to put together right there. Yeah, I'm like, what in earth did your defense like? Did the defense attorney like? What did they say? Like yeah, what, yeah. that? What what errors? Your confessions clearly can't be recanted. I mean, well, technically, yes, you can recant them, but like, you can't just go from it. But that doesn't debunk that your DNA was on the body. <laughs> yep, and I feel like. The defense attorney probably had some wild thing that they probably didn't even believe. They were just like, yeah, let's go with this. Let's see how it goes. Yeah, let's just like, yep, let's just give it a, let's give it a go. If it fails, it fails, but let's see if it works. (laughs) That's stuff like that. I'm just like, I'm (sighs) always so blown away by the system. And I'm just like, what the actual hell? (laughs) Yeah. And it's, and it's sad is because like this wasn't, like you hear about certain things like this happening when, you know, they're kind of going in it with circumstantial evidence and they don't really have enough to prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But for tw- for the 2000s, you know, yeah. we had made strides in being able to, you know, determine like DNA um, and how it's presented on the body and stuff like that. So I, I guess mm-hmm. I would expect you would expect this from like a later, you know, an, or, or I mean, an earlier crime of. Yeah. In the 70s or the 60s, maybe even the 80s, they didn't have, like, the best system. But really, 20s, the 2000s, 2011, I don't I don't get it. Mm. Ay, ay, ay. So the next one that we're going to cover is the story of Martha Moxley. The last time Dorothy... Moxley saw her daughter, 15-year-old Martha Moxley, alive was the night before Halloween of 1975. She was attending a nearby party with a friend, and the following morning, her bloody body was discovered semi-nude in her own back garden in Greenwich, Connecticut. She had been brutally beaten with a golf club. The beating was so vicious that the golf club had broken. A golf club? What? Broken? What? Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> the killer then turned the broken golf club into a weapon and stabbed the teenager several times, once in the neck. The first point of interest in the, in the investigation was the party she had attended on the night she died. 
The party was at a nearby home of brothers, 15-year-old Michael and 17-year-old Thomas Skakel. Their father, Rushton Skagel Sr., is the brother of Ethel Kennedy, the widow of Robert F. Kennedy. Oh, yeah. So we're setting this up that these people that could be responsible for this murder come from a very long line of money. And we know what money gets you in any type of trial. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, meaning the brothers were his nephews. Martha's diary revealed that she had enjoyed romantic relationships with both of the brothers. Oh, this okay. reminds me of like an Elena. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stefan and Damon Salvatore. Um, Thomas and Martha were seen flirting at the party and left together. And this was the last time she was seen alive. Thomas was immediately suspected. In addition to the witness reports placing them together, he had also had a shoddy uh, alibi. With no evidence to warrant an arrest, the case eventually went cold, but many local people believed that Thomas had committed the brutal murder until 1991, when his younger brother, Michael, was charged with her murder. Well, that's a that's a spin. I mean, I know that they were, like, both romantically involved, but... Yeah. While it was concluded that the golf club used in the murder had come from Skagel's household, no forensic evidence could successfully connect him to the brutal slaying. During his trial, two students testified that they had heard Michael confess to killing Martha, bragging, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. What? Oh, Oh, you little obnoxious. (laughs) Again, it's like, I can't stand it and it's so true you see this all the time where people they come from money and or sons or daughters of anybody political or famous they seem to just get off with a slap on their wrist oh yeah yep (laughs) and that's the thing that's like so crazy because even to this day I feel like um what was that other very famous murder of OJ Simpson oh yeah like how people still to this day talk about it and they see, like, there's pictures on the internet of what was done, and yet, homie's still walking out, like, no yeah, big I deal, don't. and I'm just like, we, there is visible evidence, like, he said he did it, and it's just, like, stuff like that, I'm just like, wow, because if I ever were to see him in person, all I'd be able to think about is, you brutally murdered these people. <laughs> yeah, I just don't get it, I don't get it how, like, what would you feed the jury that apart from all of the evidence that's right there in front of them? Like what, what, what fight do you bring that says that like, Oh, you actually didn't do it, but you were Mm -hmm. bloody. Your DNA was there. You had the murder weapon. You were in the household. So how are you, please tell me your deranged story of how you didn't do this, but you were in the middle of the crime scene. Please go. (laughs) Mm. What? (sighs) Yeah, that's so, like, I'll never be able to understand that. It's like, insanity, insanity, insanity. (laughs) Um, Okay, so our next story is, who is Orange Socks? I'm looking down at my socks, they're white, so I'm not (laughs) a So on Halloween night of 1979, 
The unidentified body of a young woman was discovered along Interstate 35 near Georgetown, Texas. She had been sexually assaulted and then strangled to death. The unidentified murder victim was estimated to be in her 20s and stood about 5'9", and weighing between 350 to 140 pounds. Her hair was brown with a reddish tint. She had hazel eyes and pierced ears. Her teeth were in good condition and had zero dental work. She was naked except for a pair of orange socks. Thus, earrings, her the monkery orange socks. So people call her just orange socks because... That's literally all she was wearing. But also, like, in reports like this, I always find it so interesting how, like, they go so into detail about, like, how they even included she has had no dental work done. Like, what? Like, that, yeah, like, like, they know that always all of is these like, things. oh, okay, that's good. I feel like, for me, it would be like, she has these number of cavities. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's crazy. Um, In 1982, infamous serial killer Henry Lee Lucas confessed to her murder. He claimed he picked her up as she was hitchhiking and that her name was either Joni or Judy. Further investigations show that Henry Lee Lucas was most likely working in Florida at the time of the murder, and no evidence could collaborate his claims. Of course, of course not. He was known to confess to murders that he did not commit. A run of her DNA in a database that matches the genetic material of missing persons with that of identified bodies proved unfruitful. Her identity and who killed her still remains unresolved to this very day. She was buried in a grave marked unidentified woman in Georgetown. That's just so sad. I feel like reading situations like that that it's like clearly someone that doesn't have either family or friends because it's like for someone to not notice that you're gone mm-hmm. is just it's very sad. and for them yeah. to list you as an unidentified woman and it's just yeah it's just yeah awful. and it makes me it's like I'm curious of like you know like you hope that CODIS like that's set up today and and or familiar or gen- DNA could like link her to even someone in her line and finally get her a name. And I know that people are, you know, new data is entered into these systems on a daily. And it's just, it's like sad. It's like when you see how many though of these types of unidentified unsolved murders and people have just gotten off the hook with murder and people are left as, you know, unclaimed basically. Yep. And Not important. No name. It's just sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is super sad just because it's like, I don't know. I feel like obviously all of these stories are just heartbreaking. Um, mm-hmm. And I just want to like, I don't know. I just want to swoop in and save each one of these peoples and just be like, get out or don't do this or come here. And um, yeah, it's just it's just really sad. But it also... Um, opens everybody's eyes out to see how the world really is and it makes people a lot more cautious Um, just because I feel like like before hearing these stories I would always be very 
innocent minded in the sense of like, oh, yeah, everybody's good and everyone can be my best friend. And then it's like you hear stories like this and you're like, oh, my gosh, how could I have been so foolish to do the things I've done? And it's like, yeah, but um, it's it's, yeah, it's so scary. And it's also just so sad, too, that that's the world that like, you know, instead of just being able to joyfully walk outside just like that, just feeling like, you know, another beautiful day, what could happen to me? It's not going to happen yeah. to me. Of course, it doesn't, these types of things wouldn't happen to me. You know, it, those things least expected, they do. And we live in a world filled with a lot of people that will do these without, without a reasonable doubt, without any remorse, and you will be left to them as a, like, like him. Oh, I think her name was, you know, Jody or Judy or Joanne. Like, you don't even, you don't even care enough to get her name. Like, that's how little she meant to you. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah, it's just, it's disgusting. But, um, so we actually have two more stories for you all today. Um, And I know that hearing all these stories and um, especially with Halloween right around the corner, it can be very heavy, Um, but we have two more for you today and then we will talk about some happier things, (laughs) Um, but take it away, Chels. So the next story that we're going to cover, and I do have to apologize also for the pronunciation of this name. Um, if I am not saying it correctly. So this brings us back to 1992, where 16-year-old Yoshiro Hattori, a Japanese exchange student, was on his way to a Halloween party in his new hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. As he arrived in the working-class neighborhood in which the party was being held, he mistakenly went to the wrong house. He stood on the chilly front porch of Rodney Pears and knocked on the door. Nobody answered. But Pear's wife, Bonnie, peered out through the curtains and became alarmed. She requested her husband retrieve his gun as Harardi began to stroll back to his car, disgruntled that the assumed host wouldn't open the door to him. Pears came to the front door armed with his forty-four Magnum revolver. He shouted, freeze, to Hattori, who didn't understand what that command meant, because, again, he's a Japanese exchange student. Hattori claimed, we're here for the party. Nevertheless, Piers fired his gun point blank at Hattori before, before running back inside. Are you kidding me? Like, just because, like, you've never had just someone knock on your door because they, you know, might have had the wrong place. Now I get that this is what happened to the earlier story that we read, that they got a knock and they thought that it was like still a trick or treater, but still it's like, why not, why not ask questions throughout the curtain or something and turn on the front porch light? Why would you just like, just absorb that? Let me just kill you. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, Nevertheless, okay, so thankfully, a friend of Hattori witnessed the entire event, ran next door to request assistance. Neither Pears nor his wife offered assistance. They even shouted at a neighbor to go away when they came to help. Tragically, Hattori died on the way to the hospital. Originally, police questioned Pears before releasing him, claiming that he was fully within his rights to shoot Hattori. Are you kidding me? Like, 
I get like, and I know that this is a rule in so many states that like, if they come into your property, you have to their arms. But like, I feel like there still has to be some type of like ground because that basically means that I could kill anybody, anybody that I want. And I could always get away with it. (laughs) Yeah. I could literally call someone over that I don't like and be like, Hey, come over. And then as soon as they're on my property, just shoot. Oh, I get to kill you. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, like, I'm like, what? (laughs) However, Louisiana governor Edwin Edwards protested that the slaying of Harardi was certainly manslaughter. During his trial, Parrish tried to claim that he feared for his life. District Attorney Doug Matu disagreed. He said it hadn't been reasonable for a man of 6'2 to be afraid of a friendly, unarmed, 130-pound boy who rang the doorbell before walking away to his own car. He hadn't attempted to break in. He wasn't wearing a scary mask. He wasn't armed. Nonetheless, Pears was acquitted. He was found to be liable to harass for $650,000 in damages. What? Wait. Damages? Are you kidding? Like, are they honestly yeah. saying that damages is, equate to a murder? <laughs> oh, if you pay us, then you'll, you're, you're fine. You know, the, the life of him was worth $650,000. Oh, my gosh. I feel With like this not the way that they word that, like, you're going to pay this much in damages. He didn't total a car. Exactly. He killed their son. Like, what? I know. It's, I'm like, I, I can't. With this money, his parents founded two charities with their son's names. I mean, at least they did something good for this, yeah. but, like, they better have done something more. One was to fund U.S. students wanting to visit Japan, while the other was for gun control. Rightfully so. Yeah. Following the murder, the Japanese government was prompted to teach its citizens traveling to the United States that the word freeze what the word freeze meant following his acquittal pears claimed that he would never own again gun again he claimed he felt as though he had overreacted to his wife's apparent fear oh taking someone's yeah, life is just like it. an overreactment blame it on <laughs> wife it's like you're the one that pulled the trigger if it wasn't for you i wouldn't have done it <laughs> yeah that's the that's the same kind of like uh, oh my goodness, just too many thoughts on this, but uh, I I just can't believe the way that they're wording it. I was like, oh, you're going to pay this much for damages, and then he's like, oh, well, it, it was my wife's fear, and she's the one that made me do it, so basically blaming it on his wife now. and Exactly. Like, he's the one that each person has their own mind, each person has their own thought process, and they're in control of their own actions, so... Mm-hmm. Just think your your hand was not forced. Yeah, nobody made yeah. you pull that trigger back. But oh my goodness! So the last story for today is the Halloween Killer. So in 1974, Gerald Turner became known as the Halloween Killer, which is the name most people still call him by. His victim. Nine-year-old Lisa Ann French was sexually assaulted and murdered in Turner's bedroom on Halloween night, October 31st, 1973. His depicable act was reasonable, oh, responsible for communities nationwide to no longer permit children to trick-or-treat at night. A tiny kid, Lisa Ann French, was Turner's nearby neighbor. On that Hallow's Eve in 1973, she left home at 6 p.m. 
and eventually Trappist to Turner's house where she found the door open, calling out trick or treat. She expected a smiling adult to greet her and drop candy into her overstretched and opened bag. Then she'd be on her way to the next house for more candy. Instead, this male adult snatched the little girl, forced her into his bedroom, removed her clothes, and violently raped her. Oh, gosh. It's just like it brings chills to my body. Yeah, I feel like just starting, like, this story (sighs) is repulsive, and just starting this is just like, like, I'm trying not to cry just because it's like, how someone, just a child, and... (sighs) Just nine and innocent, you know, mm-hmm. just trying to go out for Halloween. She's probably all dressed adorable. Yep. And this is like what she gets. I Yeah, I'm getting emotional. It's just like it's so horrendous, like the way that people are. And it makes you so sad that that's, you know, society is filled with these types of individuals. And you don't know someone who can look so innocent. You don't know what they actually are capable of. Yep. Oh, and it gets a lot worse oh my goodness finally after he did that he strangled her to death he (sighs) stuffed lisa's nude body inside two black plastic garbage bags and packed her clothing in yet another bag leaving them alongside a country road adjacent to a farmer's field just outside fond du lac a four-day search for lisa that So a four-day search happened, which at times involved 1,500 volunteers. The farmer who owned the land where the plastic bags lay dormant became inquisitive and checked the bags that held Lisa. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. To see that. that. At once, he notified authorities. The next day, the state... No, the entire nation reacted in utter shock. In mid-1974, Fond du Lac police captain Melvin Heller and special agent Carl Patiski, <laughs> that's definitely not right, uh, Carl Patiski interviewed Turner at his home and asked him his whereabouts and activities of previous Halloween. Apparently, Heller felt Turner's story had a discrepancy and asked Turner if he would take a lie detector test. Eventually, Turner agreed to the test, but the results were not satisfactory to the examiner. The thing that's crazy about this, it's because we all know, like, lie detector tests, a lot of the Mm -hmm. time, they can't even use them in court. But this was back in 1974, and I feel like that's the thing that happened you know a lot of the time yeah now it's like do not take one they're dispensable people know how to pass Mm -hmm. them and you could just be over overly nervous completely yeah yeah, completely innocent and you could fail it just don't do it (laughs) or you can be a complete psychopath and then pass it with exactly believing your own story Mm -hmm. so finally turner confessed to heller what he had done and even drew a diagram where he had placed the plastic bags with the body and clothing. Turner's hair was found in the plastic bag and on Lisa's body. He was charged with first-degree murder. The jury instead found him guilty of second-degree murder. 
indecent behavior with a child, enticing a child for immoral purposes, and finally, sexual perversion. The judge gave him a 38-and-a-half-year sentence. Most Wisconsin residents felt Turner should have been given a life sentence for his horrible crime. I agree. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Life sentence, and then someone in jail should have brutally murdered him like yeah like give him like three life sentences make yeah. sure that this guy can and and no no chance of parole i feel like like the fact that they even consider just giving him a year's amount like no just bye you're done like you are not allowed to play the game of life no more but it's yeah. just like the fact that this has happened and now it's so funny because well this is not funny at all but like when I first came to America I remember that kids like we would go trick-or-treating around six o'clock just like Lisa Ann did and then all of a sudden because I remember a few years back probably around 2011 I tried to take my brothers out around six or seven and then all there was no kids out anymore and I was like why is it all of a sudden that all the kids are going out trick-or-treating at 4 or even 3.30. And it was because, like, and I agree now, obviously, knowing more about all these horrendous events, it's because nobody wants to be walking out at night with, like, their kids. And it's, like, it's supposed to be, like, a nice, enjoyable event, not freaking all of this. And it's just, Uh it's so sickening. It's so just... Oh my goodness, it's so horrendous. It's gross, and too, it's because, like, you know, when you even look at, like, the 38 and a half years, like, I would suspect that he probably could have even been alive still by that. Maybe he was in his late 60s. I don't know necessarily how old he was. I'd have to look that up, and we could always swallow back up on that. But nonetheless, you know, the chances of him getting out, like, 38 years, you could still be alive, and you could still definitely have enough time to do a few more yeah and what we've seen in so many stories is that they do they come back out yep then they do it again and it's just oh so i just um pulling up his name so gerald turner is so right now we're in 2011 so he is 71 years old currently so that means that when that took place, he was like, what, like in his 20s? Mm-mm. So that's horrendous right there. But last year, so in May of last year, he was actually getting a court hearing about Lisa's case. And it's just like, what? You're getting a court hearing? Like, like to you... retrial to try to get out? Yeah. What the? It's just like. <laughs> And seeing his pictures, it's just, it's just insane because he looks like, he just looks like a grandpa. He just looks like someone's grandpa. And then seeing his pictures from the years of like when he was trialed or when he was sent in, he just has like this, like, you know, like those mustaches, like those old, like seventies mustaches. Yeah. And his like hair, like gelled back. Like that's how he looks. He looks like. Like, the best way of putting it is, you know that 70s show? You know, um, what's his name? The guy with the curly hair. Um, I think I know who you're talking about, but I can't think of the name. But I think I can see it. 
Yeah. And so it's like he has like his hair slicked back, mustache, and just looks like like I wouldn't I would see him and I would run the other way. I'd be like, get away from me, you creepy dude. But it's just it's just so crazy and the fact that he's even getting a hearing. Like I'd be like, No, you I would just I vote to change the system and just if someone just does something like this, just mm-hmm. seal their mouths and do it like mummify them. Just mummify them. Just get them out. <laughs> seal the mouth. You are not allowed to talk anymore. You're done. Goodbye. You are no longer playing the game of life. Yeah, I just it it's so mind boggling, you know, how such an innocent child or just anybody you know innocent going to a party or just checking on the looking out their front door or you know just what you think of like a fun festivity and this is you know what comes to you and you hear these all the time like the most unexpected ways the moment that they are most vulnerable or alone that's when you know these people strike and sometimes they do it out in the open you know, it's just like, it's so sad. And I mean, it's not at all to scare you all, but it is a really important reminder that unfortunately, like while we wish that, you know, the world was just rainbows and unicorns all the time, it's not. And you really do need to be prepared. You know, don't just trust people just because they look nice. There's too many people that look nice and they're really not. Does it mean that like, what Ash and Britt always say, like, be re- be rude, be weird, and stay alive. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. Uh, and it just, like, opens up your eyes to the world. And it's, like, you can go out there and love the world and love people and show people how, like, show kindness. Like, this world clearly needs kindness. And mm-hmm. um, obviously, it just, you can draw out darkness with more darkness you have to bring light into the world and so you can only drive it out with light and with love and that's what we can continue to try and do so just even in these spooky months just try and bring that light into the world because clearly it needs it um so thank you all for listening to today's uh I think like skin crawling episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Much more than just full body chills. <laughs> oh yeah. Just skin crawling. Um, but thank you all for t- tuning in to today's episode and stay tuned for next week's even creepier stories. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're very excited to bring some more crime episodes to you as um as we kind of just like dive into the spooky month and yeah. And we're very excited for those and for you all to listen to them. And if you have any other suggestions or stories you would like for us to cover, then you know where to reach us. You can reach us on Instagram and all the other cool places that Chelsea always lets you know. (laughs) Um, So please go ahead and mark your calendar and pick out your favorite onesies because it's going to be a night to remember. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Coffee and Onesies Season 2. Be sure to keep an eye out for next Monday's episode. And to keep up to date with all things Coffee and Onesies, head on over to Coffee and Onesies Podcast on Instagram, turn on those notifications, like a photo, follow us, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. And be on the lookout for next week's episode drop. See you next week.